Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Follin. Thanks for downloading this time what it's like being freelance for presenter and writer Ollie Mann. If you think that you're only going to succeed by producing great work that's better than everyone else and that somehow magically you'll get picked up and noticed, that is a fantasy. You'd have to be an absolute genius for that to be the case. Otherwise, you need to tell everyone that you're great, even if you don't think you are. You know, it doesn't matter what you think of your own work. You have to think that it's great and then see what the reality is as to how people respond to it. Once my foot was in the door, I needed to put all of Ollie Mann through that door and, and shove him down everyone's throats. Hey, how you doing? Hope you're good. Here we are then with part two of season two of the Being Freelance podcast, a year on from when I started it, January 2016. And uh, I actually recorded this interview just before Christmas with Ollie Mann, who is a podcaster, broadcaster, writer, does columns and stuff and papers and stuff like that. So you're going to hear that in a moment. I have a really nice chat with him. We did it then because he's going to be a dad. I think he mentions it. He's going to be a dad in January. So yeah, we, we got it out of the way just before Christmas. Uh, don't forget, beingfreelance.com is the website where you'll be able to get all the links from today's show, key takeaway points and things like that. But also check out all the previous guests as well that we've had. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you might use, the likes of iTunes. And if you can leave a review, that'd be a bonus. Okay, let's crack on then and chat to freelance broadcaster and writer, Ollie Mann. Hey, Ollie. Hello. Thanks for doing this. We'll come to what you do in a moment, but you know, you're like podcast royalty. So thanks very much. Thank you. I'm podcast minor royalty, I like to think. Ira Glass, you know, he's mm. the king. Mark Maron's the queen mum. Yeah, so what are you? You're like Zara Phillips? I'd, well, th- w- hold on a minute. I- I'd put myself at... Uh, Harry? I'd like to be Harry. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> if that's okay. So why don't we get started chatting about how you got started being freelance? Well, I was, I suppose, uh, straight out of university into a series of contracted jobs but um I, I i've never really i can't really tell you the moment i went freelance per se because i, I wasn't really conscious it, to me that was a word that just always meant something to do with tax arrangements and wasn't particularly interesting like to me the thing that was important was was i working on the kind of things i was interested in and then it just turned out i suppose that in the end i've ended up being freelance what did you do at uni so I did English literature, um, but really I didn't. I really wasted that opportunity to read lots of books and to talk to world experts on Coleridge uh, by instead, uh, you know, directing student theatre and writing for the student newspaper uh, and doing all that kind of stuff. I knew right from then, from the age of 18, that my university uh, career was really a chance to, to dabble in all these different parts of the media that I thought I might be interested in working in, but I hadn't quite made up my mind which was the one for me. And actually, I think that was the right approach. I mean, not not ignoring the degree, that was bad. <laughs> but um, but uh, definitely sort of dipping my toe in all these different areas. Because as it's turned out, as you know, Steve, you can't really specialise in one area anymore. You have to do a bit of everything. You have to understand... Uh, for example, if you want to work in audio, you kind of need to know a little bit about video editing, perverse as that may seem. And, you know, if you want to produce your own work, then you need to know a bit about graphic design because it needs to look a certain way on the internet and so on and so forth. Everything's all interlinked. So I, I suppose I just used my university time to do as much stuff as possible that I could on an amateur basis, on a student basis, um, and then learn my mistakes there. So you had a vague idea that you wanted to work, well, a more than a vague idea that you wanted to work in the media, but you didn't know what? 
Yeah, exactly. And I still almost would say that's the case. Um, there's nothing else really that I'm built to do. I mean, I'm hopeless with my hands. Uh, I'm useless at any kind of labouring. Strategically, I'm a nightmare. I have no sense of direction. Um, I'm not very good at bossing people around. I'm not very good at taking instruction. Like there's really, <laughs> I'm a terrible team worker. <laughs> so really, um, I was always heading into doing this kind of work. Um, but it was just a question of what? And so I wanted to keep my options as open as I could, I guess. So uh, why don't we say what you do now and then we'll reverse engineer it or whatever the yeah. poncy term might be. So okay. what what do you do now? So what I do now is uh, I'm a radio presenter, I suppose, is what I would say to people's parents at parties because that's the <laughs> thing they'll understand the most readily. Uh, so uh, I nowadays uh, present, this is the mum-friendly bit, uh, I present uh, Friday nights on LBC, the news talk radio station, from 7 till 10pm and Saturday nights from 6 till 8pm. So that's sort of the day job, but obviously that's only two days a week. Uh, and I supplement that and indeed have only managed to get that job on radio uh, by doing lots of uh, podcasting, like you do. Um, so I, I present four podcasts, uh, one of which is the uh, long-running, critically renowned comedy show Answer Me This, <laughs> uh, and the other that I'm sort of most keen on at the moment is a show that no one's listening to yet called The Modern Man, uh, which is a men's magazine show, which is kind of my first solo project. Um, but then I also present a show for The Guardian called Tech Weekly, uh, and I present a show all about the media called The Media Podcast. So I do that, and I write stuff as well, uh, sort of columns, and occasionally for corporate clients or whatever, if I can do a bit of writing for telly and things. Uh, I mean, that really is for money, I suppose. I won't pretend that's my passion, uh, but I occasionally crank out jokes for people as well. So let's figure out how on earth you got there then. What did you do after uni? Straight after uni, I... I was lucky, actually, because I had two opportunities which I grabbed. One was I won a Critic of the Year award for stuff that I wrote for the student paper from the Guardian Student Media Awards. Ah. And that the gold prize for that was spending a week doing work experience at The Observer. Um, so I knew as soon as I had that, and again, this is a philosophy I think I've pretty much stuck to <laughs> since those early days. I knew as soon as I had that, that once my foot was in the door, I needed to uh, put all of Ollie Mann through that door and, <laughs> and shove him down everyone's throats. Uh, so I, I turned that week at The Observer into a month's work experience at The Observer and then into getting a column. So actually, ridiculously, straight out of university, I had a TV column in The Observer. Um, but I wasn't getting paid. Uh, but anyway, I did for four weeks write the TV column for The Observer, not the one that Clive James used to write, but the one that's in the OTV supplement as was. Um, so that was all very exciting, but I wasn't getting paid. And so I had this other opportunity, which I sort of fell back onto, which was my particular college. I went to Oxford. My college at Oxford had a, a sort of scholarship programme, I guess, with LWT, as was. Uh, again, you got basically uh, a month's work experience working on shows about uh, people who go out and drink too much and spew up all over themselves <laughs> in the street. So, um, so, so for people listening around the world, LWT is like a, a London TV channel, but it's kind of it's it's basically ITV. It's our commercial TV network type thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, long and illustrious history made lots of great uh, Saturday night entertainment shows that we all. Uh, know and love, uh, you know, Blind Date, etc. The bit that I was working on uh, was pretty much their graduate trainee department that made the really cheap stuff. I mean, stuff like rip-offs of Ibiza Uncovered. Uh, it was, you know, it was, it was Brits Abroad, post-pub entertainment. So I was working in that department, but the good news was, because I had this scholarship, it was work experience, but it was paid. I, it was a, a sort of paid internship. I got, I think, £200 a week. So I was able to feel like that was a job. I mean, it was a minimum wage job, I suppose. And so I had that for two months. 
And then again, uh, I sort of translated that into pushing my way into the company and trying to get employed there. And I ended up working there for six months. And um, so I had, but weirdly, sort of those both those opportunities happening as soon as I left university. And I was kind of trying to work out, do I want to work in print? Do I want to work in telly? Um, and having the classic dilemma, which is they're both really interesting, but at the moment, neither of them appear to be paying any money. How long does that last for? Uh, so yeah, those were my first two jobs. So you're on the verge of print or telly. You've not got a job technically properly in either and you don't know which to do. Yeah. And then what happened is telly sort of chose me um, because um, uh, you might remember sort of circa, what are we now, 2002, um, Granada and Carlton uh, bought up LWT and they all merged and they they became one ITV, one commercial network for the whole UK. And as part of that process, the department I was working for got shut down. But it meant that all of us, even though I'd only been on a monthly rolling contract for absolutely bugger all, it meant that I was considered as a priority for any job in ITV that came up because that's what they came to us with as a redundancy offer to the people that had been working there for like six years properly. They said, you know, if anything comes up with an ITV, you can apply for it and we'll treat you preferentially. So for me, it was brilliant because it didn't really feel like it was my career. I was still dabbling around. But a job came up on this morning, the uh, daily uh, magazine programme for stay-at-home mums. And uh, I applied as a job for a researcher on this morning. Uh, And I think partly because I was on that preferential list, I got it. Because I never would have been the kind of person that they would have employed at this morning otherwise. Everyone else there was gay or female or both. (laughs) Um, So I was in, I was definitely the posh boy, basically. Like the things I got given when I got there were science, antiques and royals. (laughs) So yes, I worked on this morning for two years. Then I felt a bit frustrated that I hadn't actually tried out everything I wanted to when I was at university. Like I say, there was a part of me that thought, oh, do I want to be in theatre? Like I'm interested in so many media things. So I wrote a play. I left my job to write a play, take it to Edinburgh Festival. And it was whilst we were at Edinburgh Festival promoting that play that a podcaster interviewed me about the play. Uh, And that was really the first time I'd realised just how easy it was to do a podcast, as in technically easy, the guy that interviewed me. A guy called Ewan Spence still does a podcast about Edinburgh Fringe Festival every year. Uh, his equipment was a mini-disc player and some clip-on mics. Um, and I just thought, well, I could do that. Uh, and I should do that because I used to really enjoy doing student radio. And that was with my friend Helen Zaltzman whilst we were at university. So that is why in December of 2006, uh, I approached Helen and asked her if she'd like to consider doing a podcast with me. And that, that's how Answer Me This began. Wow. So you threw, threw in your TV job yeah, to write a play and take it to Edinburgh. Yeah. Pretty gutsy. That's quite a, quite a thing to do. Well, I just, like I say, I, I, I'm still not in the position where I'm 100% certain that I know exactly what it is I want to do for the rest of my life. I think you, what you do is you construct a narrative, don't you, afterwards, where you think, oh, I was always destined to do this thing and there's the earliest sign, you know, of course I was supposed to be a radio presenter. I remember when I was eight years old making cassettes for my mum and calling it Radio Karen. <laughs> well, yeah, but there's probably a completely alternative narrative whereby I could say, of course, I always wanted to be a nuclear physicist. I, actually, no, there is no alternative narrative where I'd be a nuclear physicist. But you know what I mean? There's definitely, in theatre for me anyway, it was always a love theatre and I always thought maybe I want to be a playwright and that's still not gone. I could still write a play, I think. But um, I wanted to get it out of my system and know that that wasn't the thing I wanted to do right now. So, yeah, so that's what I that's what I did. But it doesn't it sounds adventurous, but it isn't really. I was living in rented accommodation that I could afford um, in London in 2004. This was possible Um, (laughs) uh, that I could afford on the basis of the jobs that I had. I was on very short contracts anyway. 
And I was still young, you know, I was 24, I think, when I wrote the play. So it didn't feel like a risk. It felt like something I wanted to try and do. So once you started Answer Me This, Mm. and clearly you wouldn't have known what that would end up becoming or how long it would last and things like that. Uh, And certainly back then it wouldn't have bought you any money at all. Therefore, (laughs) uh, presumably you had to find another job somewhere. Yeah, there were yeah there was a constant succession of TV day jobs going on in the background. Yeah, um, so we always took answer me this quite seriously. Um, you're absolutely right. We had absolutely no idea just how far it would take us or we would take it, but we always knew that we wanted to take it as far as possible. We weren't we weren't just experimenting. I felt there was really a strongly an opportunity. I looked across in America what was happening, and I was reading about you know bedroom bloggers and people who were making their own shows at home. And I felt like there was an opportunity in the UK for someone to do that reasonably well, because most of the things you'd listen to, the sound quality was terrible. It was just people just laughing at jokes that no one else would understand. Um, and, you know, we, we fell into some of those traps, but we were aware of them right from the beginning and tried to deal with them as, as much as we could and make it as good as we could. So we took it quite seriously. It was it was it took we'd record for a night a week. We'd plan it for a, sort of an afternoon a week and then we'd edit it for an afternoon a week whilst in my case, still doing a, a day job as well. So I'd, in my lunch breaks, be listening back to stuff we'd done and writing edit notes and, you know, I'd spend my evenings working on it. So it, it felt like a, a sort of a third as much of a job on top of my job. Um, but yeah, for money, I was still doing stuff, including uh, at one stage, the job that I was at my most professionally happy I've probably ever been, which was working as a researcher for the culture show uh, at the BBC. I loved that job. Uh, but uh, you'll spot the pattern here in a minute. Uh, I got made redundant from that um, <laughs> in um, 2008 or nine, I think. After that, Answer Me This was just at a tipping point where I could see that it might be possible to justify a career where I could say I was a presenter and not look like I was taking the piss. Now, I always wanted to be a presenter. But and I... you are a presenter, Steve. This is the internet, you see. Don't dream it, be it. But here's the thing, though. right? So I ended up being on, on the radio, but I know for a fact that it doesn't, you know, you can get to a certain point, but unless you're going to force Ollie Man through the door and down their throats, as it were, somebody else will do it instead of you. So at what point did you start like thinking, yeah, okay, I'm Ollie Man, I'm a presenter and I'm going to go knocking for opportunities? Because I'm presuming you don't end up doing, I don't know, paper reviews on the telly or the radio or whatever, unless you're, I don't know, maybe you've built up a network by this point or maybe you're just badgering, I don't know. No, I was badgering constantly and I still badger constantly. So so it's interesting, the telly thing's interesting because I've never really had any particular interest on being on TV I think I'm good on the radio. I think I'm good at audio. I think I've got a good voice for it. I know that I'm articulate. You know, I feel like I can do the job. I'm confident when I'm pushing myself. I don't think I'm the best, but I think I'm competitive and I I don't feel like I say, like I'm taking the piss when I say, consider me as a presenter. On telly, I think there are other people that are better than me because I think the skill really on TV is how you look. Um, And that's not necessarily about being attractive. I'm not doing myself down physically. It's just there's a certain charisma. You either have it or you don't. And I'm not sure I've got it. I'm okay, you know, but I think there are other people that are better than me at it. So with with telly, I always knew that it was something I wanted to do to promote myself. This is a terribly wanky phrase, but as a kind of personal brand. 
so that people identified who I was so that they then might employ me on the radio. That was always the strategy there. And actually, weirdly, that continues to be the strategy. So I will still harangue TV producers to get on their TV show. And if you're listening to this, please put me on your TV show. Um, <laughs> but really, that's so that my boss at LBC thinks, because this is, and this isn't a comment on him, this is everyone in the radio industry. They slightly, I think, doubt the power of their own medium. They, they look around and think, oh, he was on BBC One. He must be important. He must be good. We want to keep him. We want to renew his contract because he gets to be on the telly. Um, and, uh, you know, that was really the only motivation. So, yes, I, I, I don't – I'm trying to recall whether I've ever been invited onto a TV programme without me first sending at least 10 emails asking if I could. I think it has happened maybe three times. But, I mean, you know, the vast majority of other times, 30 or 40 other times, uh, it's been me saying, please, please, can I come on your – come on your show, even if I've been on before. There's just so many people that want to do it. And as I say, unless you've got something quite distinctive, if it's not charisma, then it's... I'm loath to say that it's difficult being a middle-class white guy because it obviously isn't. You know, everything is stacked up in your favour in a sense. But in TV terms, actually, I do think it would be easier if I was a woman or if I was not white. Um, I'm just another middle-aged, middle-class white guy talking about what's in the papers. There's a lot of me. It's quite hard for me to say, look, I'm the one you want to employ. If you were to just step out of the story for a moment and I guess give advice to people about pushing themselves, because in order for you to get in those positions, you must have taken a lot of either silence or knockbacks. Mm. What advice would you give to somebody? Like, you know, what have you learned? Maybe there's a technique or something about how to make those opportunities. Um, I think uh, pick up pick up hints. And equally, be a bit autistic, sort of both things. So be aware of whether someone likes you and wants to book you. Be aware of whether you're an irritant to them. But also ignore that instinct sometimes, because you want to harangue. If you don't harangue, you won't get the job. So forget about the social niceties you'd usually use if you were talking to a friend, um, because it's not that. It's a business conversation. You, do, you know, of course, be nice in the email, but really you're, you are saying... I'd like you to use me. There's no point shying away from the fact that that's what you're asking. Um, but equally, do pick up the hint sometimes uh, as to perhaps how that person likes to be contacted. I mean, I'll note sort of, not literally, but sort of, you know, I'll make a little mental note uh, as to when someone responds to an email. There are some people that like to do their emails at nine o'clock in the morning. There are some people that prefer to do them at 11 o'clock at night. I'll then contact that person at that time because I know that's when they're in response mode. Um, and the other thing I do, and this is this is a trick, this is a psychological trick. If anyone emails me pretty much, uh, or if I email anyone and they respond, uh, I always then wait a day to respond back. Um, because the way I think of it is, I'm then in their thoughts for two consecutive days, which makes it more likely that they're thinking of me more of the time. If you do it very quickly, if I say, oh, hi, can I come on your show on Saturday? And they write back and they say no. I would, I, of course, I'm going to respond and say, oh, well, hopefully next time, fingers crossed, be great to come on. But I'm not going to do that straight away. I'm going to wait till the next day so that then I'm there in their head for two days running. Nice. Uh, because here's the thing. This is a, sh a show about being freelance and uh, obviously not just about being a presenter. But I think this is relevant for lots of other industries as well. Because I know, uh, for example, we had a copywriter recently, Joel uh, from Canada. And, you know, he is plugging away at getting speaking gigs yeah. and uh, doing webinars for like really renowned marketing companies and stuff like that. It, it's all about building up that wanky personal brand. Mm. But the, the fact is, it, you know, it, it gives him extra status within his clients. And for you, your clients are the people who pay you to present podcasts and, uh, 
your radio show and stuff. So we still haven't got to the bit where you get hired by LBC, I guess. No, we haven't got to that. It's a bit, I mean, like all these things. <laughs> it just builds up momentum. It's, well, it's again, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying about you can construct a narrative whereby this whole podcasting luck was immediately, you know, uh, with great momentum heading towards a career where I was put on the radio. But also I can construct a narrative where that wasn't the case at all and it was just luck and nothing to do with anything else. But um, essentially how that happened is... Um, so Helen Zaltzman, who I present Answer Me This with, and I, as a result of us badgering people as soon as we... We put ourselves forward for a bunch of awards and we won some. And then when we won some... I got in touch with every radio producer in the country and told them that we'd won some. And as a result of that, they gave us lots of meetings. And so for about a year, even though we were just essentially amateurs doing a show from Helen's sitting room, uh, we went for probably 20 meetings with every radio production company uh, agent uh, and everything else, trying to get us on the radio. At the time, this is kind of 2008, 2009, we wanted to be Adam and Joe. Um, that was like straightforwardly what we wanted to be. We were 25, 26 years old. We had a kind of sick form sense of humour. We knew exactly who we were appealing to. And we thought actually there was a space for us at that point uh, on XFM or on Six Music or maybe even on Five Live when they were being a bit lighthearted. Uh, the landscape shifted a bit. I'm not sure there is space for that anymore, but there was, I think, then. And so we went round telling people, look, we're the next big thing. And the weird thing was it was... It was almost true. There was a what happens when you go to these independent production companies? You go in their sort of brainstorm room. There'd be a big whiteboard, and on the whiteboard there'd be a lot of names, a lot of names, Steve. So it would say, I don't know, back then Russell Brand. He'd be in big name, big letters at the top. Then you'd go down the list. You know, George Lamb about halfway down. Simon Amstel somewhere between Lamb and Brand. <laughs> uh, and right at the bottom of that list, someone, someone in the office would have heard of us, and they'd have written on the whiteboard. Helen and Ollie, question mark. So there was always, I think we'd, we'd, we'd shown that we'd got a following and we'd won an award. So there was enough enthusiasm for people to meet us and be like, oh, what are these crazy kids doing? It was almost like the YouTubers now um, who have all just walked into big book deals and all the rest of it. We were just a bit ahead of that and we were with a, a demographic that now is in their 30s but then was in their 20s. Um, and so the uh, the older people, basically, at all of these radio indies didn't quite get what we were doing, but they thought we'd probably be worth meeting. And then we just had a series of these meetings where they, they all kind of said, I really like you. I mean, I really enjoy listening to your show. It's great. It's really good, isn't it? I really like it. But you're not right for us. <laughs> uh, and that's what everyone said. And, and of course, you can't really argue with that. Like, you know, if, if they think for whatever reason they can't market what we're doing, and what we're doing is quite... It was quite unusual then. Again, things have changed a bit. Um, but back then, having um, a male-female relationship on air that wasn't built on sexual chemistry um, and, you know, we weren't married um, and wasn't built on the fact that the man would lead and the woman would chip in and laugh at his jokes, but was actually a genuinely equal relationship between friends who are male and female who just happened to be mates that wasn't there wasn't any example of that on the radio anywhere uh, Colin and Edith maybe on Radio 1 for a bit but that was it um so they just weren't receptive to the idea really so anyway this is a very long-winded way of saying eventually uh, we managed to find Jonathan Wall who was the controller of Five Live who was interested enough to give us a punt and he gave us our first radio show uh, which went out on New Year's Eve at 10 p.m so it was the last two hours of the year in 2009 um 
which in a way is a great slot, but of course is a slot that no one's actually listening to because they're out. Um, so it's a good place to kind of experiment with new talent. And they gave us a two-hour show for us to do our own thing. And we did, and it went okay. And we did a follow-up in 2010 in the summer, another two-hour special that went out Bank Holiday Monday, and then another follow-up the following year in 2011 on Bank Holiday Monday. So Five Live were giving us these two-hour one-off specials. And as a result of that, when they were putting together their new show, which was called Saturday Edition, uh, hosted by Chris Warburton, um, they thought of us as the internet experts, quote-unquote, who could come on each week and explain something about web culture. And that was perfect because it, it gave us an opportunity to do our shtick. It showed that we sort of understood online culture to that audience who knew who we were but didn't quite know why we were important. Uh, and it was an opportunity for us to practice doing live radio. And after three years of doing that... Um, I ended up having a meeting at LBC with James Rear, who's now the uh, boss of LBC and also all of uh, news coverage for, for Global Radio. And he said, have you ever thought about presenting uh, a talk show? And the honest answer to that, and I should have said yes, I and mean, you're supposed to pretend, you're supposed to pretend that your, your ambition, your lifelong ambition is to host the breakfast show on whatever station you're going for a meeting with. But my honest answer was no, I've never thought, I thought he was having a meeting with me because I thought he was going to say, do you and Helen want to do a slot on something? Or you know, would you consider, I don't know, doing an hour-long podcast for us or something? I was not expecting him to say, why don't you come to our our, our right-wing uh, news talk radio station and host a three-hour through-the-night phone-in? But that, that is what he thought that I could do. Um, and I just felt like I had to give that a go. So I said, no, I've not tried that, but I'd be willing to give it a go. And I ended up covering the overnight show for him. And then 18 months later, got offered the opportunity to take that job as my job, five days a week, one till four in the morning. Awesome. How, you know, a lot of that sprung out of the fact that you uh, entered awards. And for that matter, even going back to uni, you said you entered an award and then that got you into the Observer and whatever. Yeah. So I'm presuming you're going to recommend entering awards. Yeah, I think I am. Yeah. I, I mean, Helen takes a different view, actually. She thinks that we were slightly ripped off. She thinks that uh, in the case of the Sony Awards, which is the award that we won for radio for doing our podcast, she thinks that the tickets were overpriced, that the whole thing was a bit of a ripoff, um, <laughs> that you shouldn't have to pay to go to the event once you've been nominated, da-da-da, uh, that it didn't bring us anything direct. But I, I disagree. I, I think it didn't bring us anything direct, but it did make lots of opportunities for us. It was important reputationally. Um, and it gives you an excuse. It gives you something to put on that email when you write to people. It's not the only thing, though. I mean, for example, you can put on an email to someone, don't know if you've heard my podcast, but we were Critics' Choice in The Telegraph last week. And, you know, you may have only got that by asking the journalist at The Telegraph. I think the important thing is, whether it's entering awards or whether it's getting press coverage, um, or, or actually just whether it's as simple as getting reviews on iTunes or whatever the equivalent is for your industry, you know, getting reputation online, uh, I think asking for it is the important thing. You actually literally have to ask and then people who like your product, if you're doing a good thing, genuinely will give it a go, you know, and if it's good, then you've got a chance, haven't you? It's worth hearing, though, because the British sentimentality of us is like, oh, well, I won't ask, you know, I don't want to make mm. a fuss. I don't, want to, I don't want to big myself up. Yeah. But, but if you don't, somebody else will be doing it to themselves. So, yeah, I, totally. Yeah, I, I, it's just too competitive an industry to have those principles, unfortunately. You've, just, you've, just, you've got to do something else. If, if you think that you're only going to succeed by producing great work that's better than everyone else and that somehow magically you'll get picked up and noticed, that is a fantasy. You'd have to be an absolute genius for that to be the case. Otherwise, you need to tell everyone that you're great, even if you don't think you are, uh, just so that your average work can get seen by anyone. 
But the great thing about the internet is that, you know, that, that opportunity really is there then once it's out and people try it for them to make an honest assessment themselves about whether they like it. it. It sort of doesn't matter about your level of confidence in what you produce. If other people are enjoying it, then they're going to tell their friends, they're going to download it, they're going to share it, they're going to do whatever to it. So actually, you know, it doesn't matter what you think of your own work. You have to think that it's great and then see what the reality is as to how people respond to it. How important do you think the collaboration has been to your career? Because obviously you're doing solo stuff now, but, you know, Helen and Ollie for a long time fed into that story. Definitely. I think it's a really important lesson with all freelancing, actually, and this is something that isn't relevant to to podcasting or presenting or whatever, um, is knowing who to work with. That's a skill in itself. You know, sometimes you meet producers in, in telly or whatever, um, and you sort of try and work out what it is exactly that they do. And often all they do, all they've ever done before they go to members clubs and snort cocaine for 10 years, all they've done <laughs> is they've spotted talent in someone, spotted talent in someone else and said, you two should meet each other. That's it. That's often all they've done. But that is a skill, like being able to recognise who is good at their job and thinking I could work with them, I could collaborate with them is a skill. So, you know, I, Helen Zaltzman, I think is a genius. I knew that she would be great as a podcaster. It hadn't occurred to her until I'd mentioned it to her. Now, actually, in the long run of things, it it may have occurred to her eventually because her brother Andy Zaltzman went on to do his own podcast, The Bugle, with John Oliver, which was also great. And maybe she'd have realised then that she had the potential uh, to be a a podcasting superstar as she is now. Uh, But I spotted that potential in her and I remembered that we had a dynamic together when we were doing student radio. I suppose she'd spotted that potential in me by inviting me onto her student radio show when we were 19 or whatever. Um, So, you know, recognising that collaborator was really important. And then equally... All the people we work with on the show, uh, Martin, who's now her husband, uh, who writes a lot of our songs, uh, various comics that we knew, Josie Long, Matthew Crosby and others who came along and did jingles and idents for us for free. Talented people we asked to do stuff with us. My girlfriend is a graphic designer, so she did our logo, which has always been very distinct. Um, choosing the people you work with is really, really important. And that's still the case with the stuff that I'm doing now. So my new show is also technically a solo project, as you say, The Modern Man. Um, it's M-A-N-N, so my name's in the title. Uh, it's all about me, not my collaboration with others. But actually, the format is uh, every week I speak to a guy called Ollie Peart about trends that are going on. I speak to a sex expert called Alex Fox. Uh, and it's produced by a guy called Matt Hill, who I met at The Guardian. All of those are collaborative choices i'm working with matt because i think he's the best podcast producer around i love his other work and so if you meet someone who you think well they're really good at their job again it's kind of having the confidence to say well they might want to work with me i'm good enough they might want to work with me and you know half the time they might and so as part of that maintaining uh you know people talk about their network but that's what it is you you must have pretty extensive network do you um you know, do you deliberately f- keep fluffing people, uh, <laughs> or or is it left to left to chance? I get, I get, I'm getting the impression that probably nothing is left to chance. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of ruthless career focused <laughs> machine. Um, it's just the reality of the particular thing that I do. I think if I was in a different kind of area of of industry, I wouldn't be so proactive about it. But you literally don't have a choice if you want to be. Uh, on the radio and on the TV, it is so competitive that there is no other way to do it. This is the only way to do it, as far as I can tell. So do I maintain my network? 
yes, but I'm not sure it's that conscious. It's it's it it's all the things that other contributors to your show have said in the past, which is that if you're good at this, then you meet other talented people who are good at what they do. They're interesting to you because they're naturally they've got similar interests to you. So it's natural that you'd be friends, that you'd be on Facebook, that you'd take an interest in each other's work. It, it doesn't feel to me like I'm manipulating people. And I see that separately to the people that I harangue to be on their TV shows. Those people are just, you know, drones with an email address to me. I am just absolutely working them. Uh, but there are other people that I have friendships with that yeah. I'd like to be able to work with in the future. And I don't see that as like anything underhand, you know, it's just, uh, it's it's natural. Yeah, so I didn't mean to sully it or make it dirty. No, 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 not at all. But I, there is an element where, and it's again, it's quite a British approach, isn't it, to even yeah. think of it in those terms. But people do. People are like, well, are you using this person? But no, I don't feel like I am with anyone. Um, I, I, I think it's very true, though, that when you make friendships, then you don't have to have a CRM to make sure you stay in contact with people or remember things about them. Mm. You just naturally stay in touch with them because you like them. I think it was Stephanie Posovich, previous guest, who said she she doesn't network, she makes friends, and mm. I quite like that. How has all of this sort of played out? Sort of the financial side of it, you know, the actual practical business side of it? Uh, it's not my natural... Like many people that you talk to, it's not my natural strength. I didn't get into doing something creative because I wanted to be an accountant. And it's frustrating in a way. I quite Weirdly, I quite enjoy some days sitting down with my Google document and working out what I've been earning. And it's always a pleasure to actually invoice someone, obviously. But, you know, I, I, there's increasingly amounts of days where I'm just like, oh, I just don't want to do, I don't want to see... Uh, I don't want to try and find out what this person's contact details are to try and chase up 50 quid for appearing on a show that, you know, it's 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 quite tedious. Um, so uh, I'm not a big fan of it, but uh, I suppose the only advice I'd have from the point at which I became a full-time writer and broadcaster rather than someone who as a hobby did a bit of writing and broadcasting whilst holding down a day job um, is just have as many balls in the air as possible. So I, I'm in a position now where even if half of my employers decided to fire me overnight, I'd still be able to uh, pay my mortgage. And that's really all I've ever considered from that point of view. The amount of money that I earn has varied hugely. I mean, when I was doing five days a week on LBC, uh, it was the overnight show, but it, I was being paid the same rate as a presenter that I would be for presenting during the day. In, in fact, weirdly, overnights are quite important to LBC because it's the only time during the day where they're number one in London. Um, because obviously if you're awake at three o'clock in the morning, you, you kind of would rather hear someone talking than just hear some records. Um, so uh, actually, it's a really important slot to them. So so when I was doing that, uh, I was earning an insane amount of money, more money than I'd ever think I would earn from from talking for a living. But I chose to tell my boss, look, I'm I'm going to I'm going to chuck this in by the summer unless I get a different job within this company because I love what I'm doing, but it's ruining my body, it's ruining my relationship, it's going to affect my mental health and everything else. So some things are more important than the money that you're earning. And then he moved me to the slot that I have now, which I absolutely love, but obviously I'm doing two shows a week, so I'm earning two-fifths what I was out of them, which is a big chunk uh, when it's such a lucrative career. So I've had to fill a lot of gaps. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is I, I haven't made decisions based on money at any point, I don't think. You said about filling gaps... Uh, and you've mentioned, you know, creating your own podcast now, uh, The Modern Man. Yeah. And this really intrigues me because basically 
yet again, you're not waiting for other people to come to you. You're creating something. It feels like you're creating something that you want to do. Like this could be a radio show. It could be a TV show. Hey, it could just be a podcast, which gets lots of listeners and builds up and makes loads of money that way or whatever. Mm. It's showing different sides to you, perhaps, than the serious radio stuff or the totally comedy stuff. So, yeah, I I just love the fact that, you know, you're able to create that content to create what you want to do. Is, is it like a really deliberate thing? Like, oh, right, this is where I want to get at. What can I create now? I don't know. Sort of. I mean... It... It, it yes it is but again it's that use of terms like deliberate and strategy <laughs> kind of gives it a sense of uh a sense of you know thinking about everything which which wasn't really there it's not it's not as calculating as that um it's just that uh i was 24 when we started answer me this um once you've established a format of a show and it works in a particular way and you've got a certain rhythm and again, I think this applies in worlds of freelancing that aren't anything to do with broadcasting. But in the case of a podcast, once you've established a show, uh, then you don't want to change that format when it works. You know, you don't want to mess with a hit. So essentially, the show that Helen and I are cranking out now, I mean, it's now fortnightly instead of weekly. It's now 45 minutes instead of 35 minutes. It now doesn't have a sketch at the beginning. It's basically the same show, though. And, you know, guess what? I'm not 24. I'm, I'm 34. I'm nearly 35. I'm going to be a dad in January. Uh, I live a different life, actually. But I love playing the part of Ollie on Answer Me This. It's really fun. Um, it is, of course, part of my personality. But in the meantime, I've been presenting, you know, three, four, five-hour-long uh, you know, election coverage specials for LBC, you know, interviewing Nigel Farage or whatever. It's a very different side of my personality that I've been projecting there. And I felt like there was somewhere in the middle, exactly as you said, for me, which reflects slightly more closely who I am now. Um, and I wanted an outlet for that. I, I sort of can't have too much fun on LBC because it is a news station at the end of the day. You can make the odd wry comment, but you, you can't decide to have an hour-long phone-in about what colour are your pants. Um, and, you know, on Answer Me This, uh, we deal with some serious questions. Um, you know, all kinds of issues come up that range from illness to death to incest and goodness knows what, but we treat them in a comic way because that's the format. You, there's only so much we can say that's serious on that show before we're not doing our show at all. And I wanted a show where I could do both. On The Modern Man, I can be serious about serious stuff and I can be funny if I want to be. Okay, now I always do this thing where I ask you for three facts about yourself, make two true, one a lie. Let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me? Okay. Uh, I once tweeted as Keith Lemon. That's fact number one. Uh, fact number two, uh, Steve Wright once prank called me uh, as Ray from Gloucester on my LBC show and I didn't know it was him. And fact number three is I briefed the actor Andrew Lincoln whilst dressed as a meerkat. Oh, man. They're good um, facts, I think. Keith, Keith Lemon, Celebrity Juice. I, you see, I think you worked on Celebrity Juice, even though, we, even though we didn't talk about it. I alluded to writing knob gags. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's that covered. But did you tweet as Keith Lemon? So it would have been possible. Maybe it was your job to. Or does he... Mm, Steve Wright phoned you up. So Steve Wright is a, a big, famous DJ. Would he be phoning up your LB show? Have you been on his show, though, as a... As like a gadget type tech type guy, you yeah, probably Helen, have. Helen and I, before our five live gig, were doing uh, 
the internet bit on the big show. So, yeah. <laughs> on the big show. And Andrew Lincoln as a meerkat. All of these could be true. I I don't think Steve Wright prank called you, though. I don't think Steve Wright prank called you as Ray. Well done. That is right. He did yes! not. Yes! Um, but he does apparently prank call Clive Ball. It, it's been 10 or 20 years since, but apparently he used to. In, before the internet... Uh, he used to call Clive Bull at one o'clock in the morning on LBC and pretend to be someone like Ray from Gloucester. He does a series <laughs> of voices. He's a, he's an LBC fanatic, which is excellent because that means you were dressed as a meerkat, uh, which is is pleasing to know. This is what happens when you work on a magazine show. You see, this morning, you know, it's, it's juggling multiple items. So Andrew Lincoln was in to talk about his new film, uh, and uh, we were also doing an item about Meerkat Manor, uh, for which <laughs> in the pre-titles joke sequence, I was dressed as a meerkat. Uh, Fern Britton looked up from her seat across to Philip Schofield and he turned into a meerkat, which was me. <laughs> well, so you've been Philip Schofield as well. I have, yeah. That's yeah. a better way of putting it, in a way. Excellent. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Ollie is up to so much, so go check out beingfreelance.com because there'll be links to all of the different shows, uh, the, the media one, the tech one, the, the modern man. Uh, answer me this, of course, as well, and, uh, and what you're up to on LBC. Thank uh, you. And if you like it, tell your friends. <laughs> yeah. And then employ me. <laughs> uh, but before uh, I let you escape, uh-huh. if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would it be? Probably that collaboration point, actually. Um. Be on the lookout for people you can work with. Short and sweet. I like it. It's the, it's the most important thing. It's the most important thing. You know, no man is an island. Nice. Uh, I say doing my podcast on my own. Uh, <laughs> in my dining room. Yeah, but you, you emailed me. You know, that's an example. <laughs> Absolutely. It's true. I'm not just sitting here talking to myself. Exactly. Ollie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And It's a pleasure. It's a great show. I really enjoy listening to the show. God bless you, sir. Particularly, by the way, may I say, Ollie Newport, who was on uh, a few weeks back, Oh, a few months back. Wow. Oh, was he? Yeah, was yeah. it a few months ago? Yeah. He yeah. Uh, he turned up to announce me this book signing in December 2010, dressed very distinctively. Uh, he was wearing one of those uh, animal hats. You know, in the in, in 2010, there was this thing for cool teenagers with floppy hair wore hats that looked like they had cats on their head. Do you remember that? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah anyway, he was wearing one of those and he came up. To, see, it was interesting to hear his episode because he was very forthright then. Like he was 18 then. And he came up and he said, I'm a big fan of the show. I'm Ollie Newport. I do stuff on, on, on the internet. And I remember his name uh, purely from that encounter. And then I saw it in your list of contributors. No way. So there you go. Networking. Totally. And he's doing all right for himself. He's too, doing very he? well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, if I ever bump into you, I'll, I'll grab my, my elephant hat that I've got. <laughs> or the monkey one. I've got a choice, actually. That's a good thing about having kids. It's all about standing out from the crowd. Uh, all the best being freelance. Thanks, Ollie. Thank you, Steve. So there you go, Ollie Man. Hope you enjoyed that. And there's so much in there, even if you're not a presenter or want to be a presenter. So much about getting what you want, uh, fulfilling yourself creatively, experimenting, collaborating, and yeah, you know, being persistent. Uh, in the face of knockbacks, it's, uh, it's, it's some good stuff in there. Don't forget beingfreelance.com for the notes and to listen to all the other guests as well. Please do subscribe, and it would be remiss of me not to point you in the direction of Ollie's podcasts as well. The Modern Man podcast has really grown uh, in its first series. There's some great interviews in there. There's like an interview with a guy who was held, a British guy, but he was held in a maximum security prison in the States. 
an interview with a guy who gambles. And I know he said it's aimed at men, but frankly, I don't see why anybody wouldn't enjoy uh, the stuff that they're doing. Uh, obviously, answer me this. Also, the Guardian Tech Podcast is uh, is actually the place where I've heard one of the most insightful discussions about ISIS. Curiously, <laughs> they were discussing how that group used technology in order to recruit. And actually, that's maybe how we need to counteract what they're doing. So basically, it's not just geeking over technology. And if you're really into your media, particularly the UK, British media, TV and radio industries, then the media podcast is really good. But anyway, check out all of the links which will be in the show notes. And you have a great week being freelance. Thank you.